0: Thank you so much for tuning into the logs coming up episode two, an addiction to ourselves. Ask yourself to what length would you go to get access to the thing you crave would you lie for it would you steal for it maybe kill for it well for the British the Imperial British in 1839 war was always on the docket in the years prior primarily in the 1820s Britain had forcefully opened the Chinese king dynasty to the world See, at this point in time, Britain was the world's power, the world's superpower. Ever heard the saying, the sun never sets on the British Empire? It's because it never did. At its height, it had control of roughly 25% of the world's land mass. The seas belonged to Britain. So when they wanted to trade, you traded with them. Traditionally, China had been a very isolationist country. And now, at this point in the 1920s, It was the world's largest economy, trading mainly in silk, in porcelain, and tea. You probably understand now the British addiction to tea. That was built upon the Chinese economy, opening it up to the world and taking its goods, flowing them out of China and into the world. When the British made this deal with the King Emperor at the time, the Emperor of China, they said... We want silk, we want porcelain, we want tea. What do you need for it? What will you trade for it? And the king emperor told them, silver. I want silver for it. And at the time, 1920s, the British were willing. They traded silver for tea, porcelain. Tea arrived on the English shores, and the population was hooked. This continued for a long time. But eventually, the deposits in the British treasury ran low. What was Britain to do? They had a population addicted to tea. They had a deal with China to take tea, to trade tea for silver. The emperor of China said that he would ensure tea would reach English shores as long as the British paid in silver. So what was the world superpower to do? Do you know what they did? I'll tell you what they did. The British took a look at their vast empire, their vast lands, and thought, What can we possibly trade? What can we possibly do to bring tea back to the British people, the British people that had been addicted to this new craze? The British looked to India. India at the time was producing, one of the things they were producing was opium. So using their British East India Company, they harvested opium from the fields of India, loaded them onto their naval ships, And brought them to China. Okay, so now you'd probably say the British are going to look at the deal again, maybe change it with the Chinese emperor and say maybe we'll trade you opium for tea. No. What do they do? They bring the opium to the black markets of China. They sell it to criminals. What do they sell it for? Silver. That silver that they got from those criminals, those black market salesmen, They gave it to the emperor in exchange for tea. The British created this system of bringing opium to Chinese shores, trading with black market businessmen, taking silver from them and giving it to the emperor. And the British people, back on the island of Britain, were happy. They got their tea. But who wasn't happy? Chinese people were addicted the Chinese economy tumbled half its size in about 10-15 years. Chinese officials took a look at this. They saw their civilization at the mercy of this drug, and they knew who was at fault. It was the British. So what do they do? The only logical thing to do, really, they imposed taxes on the incoming opium, tariffs. But the British were angry. They said these sudden tariffs on... British goods flowing into China. It hurts both their economies. They felt these Chinese officials were going against the will of Britain and imposing a revenge strategy against the British. So, what do the British do? Do they impose sanctions on China? No. They funnel in the Royal Navy, their gunboats, and start a war. Have you ever heard of the Opium Wars? In 1839, the first one was fought. Yes, there are two. The British decimated the Chinese forces and forced them into a treaty, the treaty in which they won Hong Kong and a number of other territories. And they exacted their revenge on the Chinese for withholding tea from them. Why do we get addicted to things so badly that we'll fight wars over them, kill others for them? What do these addictions, how do these addictions possess us such an enthralling possession that an empire like the british at its height will use all its economic and military strength to get their craving exact their revenge and furthermore what does this have to say about human evolution and how we are wired on this episode let's explore that let's explore the actual science behind addiction what actually goes on in our minds and in our bodies And then let's take it a step further to see how this affects us socially and why addiction is selected for. The main question we're going to ask here is, are we addicted to ourselves? So to begin, we have to look at neurologically what is going on in our brain when we talk about an addiction. When we think usually of an addiction, we turn to drugs as our example. And they do work very well in our discussion here. So we'll use them as an example here, too. We'll use them as a way to understand the neurological changes that occur in the brain when an addiction is formed. So when we think of drugs like marijuana or heroin, for example, which itself, heroin, is derived from opium, by the way. When we think of those drugs, uh, we think of them mimicking the behavior of the brain's own reward system, affecting things like the molecule dopamine. Now, dopamine is a neurotransmitter in the brain and it has many functions, like movement uh, to associative learning, but it's most known for its pleasure response when it innervates tissues of the brain. Before we define dopamine further, I think it's important to look at the basic pathways that dopamine undergoes when it innervates those parts of the brain. So let's get into some basic, very basic, neurodevelopment. So. When we think of the brain, imagine it in your head right now. Your brain is actually folded in on itself. If we remove the brain and the spinal cord from the body, and we had the, if we had the ability to stretch it out, stretch it out without destroying it, we would see it as basically one long tube. The cortex will be on one end. The cortex is the, the bumpy, wavy part at the top of your brain. That will be at one end. And at the other end, would be the spinal cord, the end of the spinal cord, which has a bunch of nerves emanating from it. It looks exactly like a horsetail. If you've ever seen a horsetail, you can imagine it that way. Its name is the the cauda equina, which is actually Latin for horsetail. So that's at the very other end. So now imagine, long tube, cortex one end, cauda equina at the other. And when we grow, we're growing from something called the neural tube in developmental biology. And we slowly build our nervous system from the most basic features to the most complex. So if we think about it actually in the brain, the top of our head, the very end of it, the piece that attaches to the spinal cord, you could think about that as the most basic part of the brain. Here we find brain structures that are the most essential to just everyday life. They conduct the basic life-giving functions, things like breathing, balance, and movement. So when we grow from there, and I imagine it's not folded yet, it's just a tube. When we go up from there, we move towards the cortex, and we see in the cortex, we see those areas of the brain that are dealing with this higher order form of thinking and with memory. In the middle of the brain, between the cortex and the the end of the brain, we find something called the midbrain. Here is one of the areas where dopamine is produced. There's an area in the midbrain, without getting too specific, called the ventral touchmental area and it's one of the areas where dopamine is produced and from here dopamine can move up to the brain and to these areas of higher-order thinking. So the pathway that we're concerned with here is called the mesolimbic pathway. If you break that down, meso, middle, limbic, is referring to the limbic system and we'll define that in just a second. But this mesolimbic pathway is where dopamine projects itself into the higher-order the, the higher areas of the brain and the forebrain. So the limbic system is actually one of the coolest in the brain. It functions in things like self-motivation, in learning. A lot of people associate it with memory and emotion. A cool thing, just a side note before we move on. The limbic system, it straddles the edge of the cortex and it spans around the forebrain. Part of the limbic system, in very close contact with the limbic system, are these projections called the olfactory bulbs. They actually sit on the underside of the cortex of the brain. And they're very, very close. They get signals from the top of the nose. So when the nose senses a smell, it goes up to the olfactory bulbs and into the limbic system. So that's when when you smell things, you just instantly associate a memory with them. And that's one of the cool things about the limbic system. Memory, and it functions in all these other systems. And beyond memory, another thing that the limbic system is associated with is emotion. And now, referring back to our discussion about dopamine, when the mesolimbic pathway of dopamine, where dopamine is produced in the ventral tegmental area, in the midbrain, from there it goes up and into the limbic system, mesolimbic, it triggers things like instinct and emotional responses. So these are some of the most basic emotions, things like fear and anger, and drives like uh, hunger or sex. These can also be higher-order drives like a need for dominance over another, or something like care for an offspring. And now, in the middle of the brain, midbrain, the part that's not the most developed if we think about it in comparison with the cortex, which is the most rational, higher-order, logical thought center of the brain, you could say when we relate this higher-order thought in the cortex versus the basal drives in the lower part of the brain, from this midpoint in the brain, dopamine is derived, and it is from this point that it shoots up towards these higher order areas. When dopamine reaches these areas of the brain, it innervates them, and in so doing that, it brings about a sense of pleasure. So when you think of something like a drive against hunger, it's something that is sensed by the tissues as a lack of nutrition, a lack of nutrients, And the drive against that hunger, like the drive to get food, is one fulfilled by the limbic system. And once it's fulfilled, dopamine is released, leading to a pleasure response. Now, this basal drive, something like hunger, that can be referred to as something of a primal need. But dopamine also works in other situations. Imagine an example here being you holding the door open for another person. And when you do so, this action that's so small, you do feel a sense of pleasure. And that pleasure is a more social communal pleasure because you are doing something in order to help the group and in so doing you hope that the group will accept you and protect you this is something done by animals all the time that's why packs exist because people and animals have protection in numbers and dopamine reinforces that it reinforces things like animalistic behavior But now think of something like praise. When a teacher praises you for doing a good job, when a parent praises you for doing a good job, or when you praise yourself for doing a good job, whether it's external or internal praise, a surge of dopamine reinforces that praise. And it acts as a positive reinforcer of that action. It basically tells us that X action will give us Y amount of pleasure. And in so doing, action acts, we will receive that pleasure. In so doing a good job on an exam, you will receive praise from your parents for doing a good job and will experience a surge of dopamine, which you will feel as a sense of pleasure. So you see it's involved in even these higher order things. Things that are very communal, very social, and that reinforce relationships. Whether it's with yourself and reinforcing your own self esteem, which the limbic system does play a role in in motivation, or between two parties. Now, what if we take that neurological chemical response that dopamine delivers and just crank it up to 11? That's what you get with a drug addiction. Drugs like those we defined earlier, like marijuana or heroin, they play a role in the pleasure response and they're much more effective than dopamine is itself their similar structure to dopamine causes them to interact with the neurons that would normally interact with dopamine and it causes them to respond in such a way that they're responding to dopamine they are undergoing the processes that they would have undergone if dopamine innervated them and working towards that pleasure response so when a drug goes into the brain affects these neurons and triggers them it triggers those centers of the brain that respond to dopamine and bring reinforcement positive reinforcement So relate it back to that example with doing a good job. When you do a good job, you get praised, right? That praise gives you a surge of dopamine. Now replace that good job part with drugs and crank that praise up. And there you get an example, a very basic example of why drugs are so addictive. They activate these neural circuits powerfully and cause changes in the brain and become an addictive substance where the brain needs it to just function. When the brain is sensing these higher levels of dopamine, or the dopamine-like substance, it itself will lower its amount of natural dopamine to counteract and try to retain some balance between naturally made dopamine and dopamine-like substances. So the brain produces less dopamine. So in order to keep the levels balanced, the levels of dopamine, the pleasure response in the brain, in order to keep those balanced, somebody who does drugs has to keep doing drugs. And when they keep doing drugs, they keep setting those things off balance. This is a phenomenon that is related to the brain's plasticity. Brain plasticity, or neuroplasticity, refers to the brain's ability to change throughout life by forming new connections with new circuits. So the brain, if you just think of the entire life of a person, the brain is most plastic as a child. Because all those circuits, they're just an overabundance of circuitry. And as we grow, we start to hardwire those pathways and start to streamline the brain. But that doesn't mean the brain loses its ability to reorganize itself. It can still do that. And we just had an example right here where dopamine levels in the brain are decreasing because external dopamine-like substances are being injected into it. Now, it also follows suit that you can re-engage the natural release of natural dopamine if drug use has ceased. And... This is a great part of the brain, it's an integral part of the brain, because without brain plasticity, we couldn't grow our brain from children to adults, and we couldn't recover from any sort of injury to the brain. This neuroplasticity is a way for the brain to change in terms of experience, and it does have the power to change in response to drug use. Now, the more addictive the drug, the harder it is to recover from, but theoretically, it is possible. Now, why is brain plasticity, you would ask, why is brain plasticity important in our discussion over addiction and over dopamine-like substances and the balance of pleasure responses to dopamine release? Well, it's important because we can see, because of this ability for the brain to change, we can see how pleasures change over time. What I think is even more important than that is that we can see what will stay the same. Hello and welcome to Philosophy This Moment Right Now, a segment where we talk about philosophy right now. And on this week's episode, we're going to be asking a question. The question is, if you could remove an emotion, what would it be? What does your choice say about you? And what does it say about the society you live in? Now for me, I'd probably remove embarrassment. What does that say about me? I probably get embarrassed. And what does it say about my society? We're all afraid to show emotion. And that's been Philosophy This Moment Right Now. Back to your regularly scheduled programming. Evolutionarily, when things stay the same, they are very important to life biologists call this when things remain the same they call this conservation the most the area that we most associate conservation with is genetics so when something is a conserved gene it means that it stays the same relatively between many different species and if we can trace that gene we can see what is important to life in that species or that subsect of species When you think of conservation, we can use the example of, an example of conservation would be something like the ncRNA. These are universally conserved genes, genes that can be found in all organisms. These ncRNAs, just so we don't get too specific, these ncRNAs are coded for in the DNA that are important to translation are important to transcription and translation transcription and translation are the pathways by which proteins are made and proteins are the basic structure for the body every cell uses proteins for something just think about your hair keratin it's a protein without this universally conserved RNA there would be no way to make it this universally conserved RNA is thought to have been conserved all the way back to the first most common ancestor of all life on earth it's important and it's conserved this way because it's integral to life without proteins there's no way you could even make organisms so when we think back to the brain and we think of something that is universal is the drive for survival this drive is conserved across all humans and all animals because they fight for their own survival. Without this drive for survival, there would be no need for a drive against hunger. Without this drive for survival, there would be no, there would be no need for a drive towards reproduction, or a drive for dominance, or a drive for communal acceptance. So when we think of this drive, we can relate it to the brain's addiction for survival. The body will undergo every possible process to keep itself running so for example think of something like a fever a state that was very dangerous before modern medicine and it still is dangerous now but it's a state that the body undergoes to defend itself in an effort to protect itself the body will increase its core temperature from an average of 37 degrees celsius to basically burn out an infection. In this process, it runs the risk of destroying its own cells because the body's own cells work best at 37 degrees Celsius because our average body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius. Generally, fevers are fairly good with destroying infections, but they can get out of hand. You could be hospitalized with a fever. And that's because it can get to a point where your body is basically destroying itself, destroying its own cells isn't that inherently selfish? Your body will risk killing itself because it doesn't want anything else to kill it. And now you, as an owner of a body, you'd say, well, I would not want to get killed by an infection. I'd rather have this state that can help me fight it. But if you think about it, if you step away for a second, and you think about it in terms of, and you think about it in the objective sense, isn't that a crazy phenomenon? It's basically like the body is saying, if I can't have it, no one can. And then it just pushes the big red button and boom. That is one example of this addiction to survival, this addiction to ourselves. And we can relate this addiction back to our previous examples. Remember when we spoke of you holding the door because you feel pleasure? Well, you're feeling pleasure yourself. You're feeling happy when you do so. Isn't that Isn't that something that makes you feel good? And isn't feeling good a state that you just want to be in? And personal wants are inherently selfish. Now, the word selfish usually has a negative connotation with it, but we're just using it here to describe the state of self-want or self-need that's motivated by the self. And we could think about it with the other example about doing a good job. You do a good job. Because externally, you want to get pleasure from praise. From Wow, pleasure from praise. Try saying that five times fast. But you want to get pleasure from praise from parents or teachers. Because that praise, it makes you feel good. It releases the dopamine that we spoke of earlier. Or you could do it because you yourself want to feel good. An internal motivation that releases dopamine. So you feel pleasure for doing right by yourself. Which is another selfish... Self-oriented action. And when you think of all the systems your body has to keep itself safe, fed, watered, and away from danger, it's an astounding feat of engineering. And our idea of the conservation of survival is clear. Think of something like a baby sucking reflex. This is a reflex that occurs when something touches the roof of the baby's mouth. That could be a finger, so the baby can suck on his own fingers. They can, this can be a pacifier or a nipple for when uh, the baby is feeding. But when it comes down to it, this sucking reflex brings pleasure. It's an instinctive reflex that brings pleasure to the baby. That's why you see in the movies when the baby is crying and the parents are shuffling around trying to find the pacifier to calm it down. It's something instinctive that brings pleasure once it's achieved. And how is pleasure achieved? neurologically a release of dopamine so when this pleasure is achieved it reinforces the pleasure and it allows the baby to know that when something stimulates the roof of its mouth to commence the reflex ingest food and survive now think of something like the fight-or-flight response to stressors the two biggest hormones in that response are norepinephrine and epinephrine. and I'd have you guess where you think those are synthesized from or better what those are synthesized from? Dopamine. The self-motivation behavior, the goal-oriented behavior that dopamine stimulates, will actually play a big role in how epinephrine and norepinephrine function. Now think again of the fight or flight response. Now let's say the fright response. You step away, you shudder, or you get ready to defend yourself. Or the fight response, you do the opposite kind of. You're in a fighting stance, ready to throw the first punch. That's all self-motivated and directed towards defense and safety for protection. And any reflex you can define, any reflex in the body is associated with some with some aspect of survival, be that satiating hunger or quenching thirst or maintaining self-protection. Everybody has these reflexes. Every baby knows how to drink milk and every person knows to cower when somebody frightens them. And they are inherent in our survival, and they're conserved. So that comes back to that definition of conservation. Because reflexes are instinctive features that just occur. They're pre-programmed. And if you extrapolate these reflexes, you come to the realization that we are pre-programmed to protect ourselves. And to reinforce the behavior of protection, we use pleasure systems or positive reinforcement, is that not an amazing feat of biological engineering? If you think of your genome, like the DNA present in every one of your cells, if you think of that as the mastermind behind this, and if you personify this gene, you can say they're the mastermind, the most evil mastermind behind everything, because they have created a system that will carry them throughout its entire life, protect them, and then reproduce and send them off to another generation. Think about it in terms of the gene. And now bring it back out to the individual organism and look at population dynamics. Why do we come together in cities and in civilizations? What was the shift from nomadic tribes towards foundational cities and city-states What was the drive there to do so to do something like that it came from a need for food a need for safety a need for water a need for all these basic aspects of survival when we really think about populations when we get down to their core you suspect that every individual's altruism or selflessness is the ideal of the civilization because Everybody working for everybody else makes a civilization stronger. So how does it make any sense that a bunch of organisms who were predisposed toward selfish behavior, behavior oriented at self-gain, self-motivation, how does it make any sense that they came together and formed a city or a civilization? Because, like we said, altruism seems like the ideal that should be held by these societies because they are societies, they're a bunch of people and everybody helping each other out would be would seem to be the right course of action. But when we think about it, altruism is not. Altruism doesn't work in the world that we live in. Here's an example to explain that. It's the classic example of altruism. This example features the Belding's ground squirrel. This squirrel is a highly social animal, usually found in meadows, flatlands, and its natural predator is the hawk. To defend themselves against hawks, they burrow into the ground. When a hawk swoops in to attack, we see this behavior, this altruistic behavior, come about. What the squirrel does is that to protect its young, the father squirrel will move away from the burrow and start doing alarm calls and screeching. In so doing, he's getting the attention of the hawk and pulling the attention away from his offspring. The problem with this behavior is that the one doing the alarm call could be preyed upon. They may not have time to run away when the hawk swoops in. It could be a fatal maneuver. So we'd say, why does the squirrel undergo this behavior? And it's really obvious when you think about it. A parent squirrel will undergo this behavior to protect their offspring or the offspring of close family members, like the offspring of a sister squirrel or a brother squirrel. And in protecting those offspring, they're giving them a better chance to move on, survive, and reproduce. And when they reproduce, they're spreading similar genes to those of the father or the mother or some close family member. So even through the self-sacrifice of one of the squirrels, we can see it's not truly altruistic because there's a goal to be had by protecting those that are closest to him genetically. What this is called is kin selection. An animal will favor and protect individuals that most closely relate to their own genetic makeup. And now we see that even though this behavior is self-sacrificing, it's not selfless. And this is the way the world works. There is no truly selfless act. All the actions we have just described, something so minuscule like opening the door and holding the door for somebody, there is something behind that. There is some gain. It could be pleasure or be that assurance that your genes will go on to the next generation. And when we look at civilization in that way, we can see how a truly selfless civilization can never be created because the individuals within the civilization are not selfless. But that's okay. We are self-directed towards our own survival. If we bring back the mastermind gene that we talked about earlier, that we have in each and every one of our cells, we know that it has an addiction to survival because it's designed the body in such a way that it will survive under many different stressors. So, is it so far-fetched to say that our genes know that our logical minds and our boundless souls are worth preserving? Now, that's implying that genes have the ability to think or to act, but they don't. That's adding an anthropomorphic quality to them. Even still, let's continue with this thought experiment. Because without even a little bit of selfishness, you have no self-worth. You need to understand yourself you need to be self-directed in order to have self-worth. And without the self-worth of the individual, a society can't stand we can look to even the most communal societies that have ever existed in the world and we will still find that at the individual level there is some adherence to virtues that only the individual can hold things like honor and bravery human qualities that are truly and wholly individualistic a society can only be made up of these individuals because a society is made up of individuals and strong societies are made up of individuals who know their self-worth. Only when we understand how important we ourselves are can we understand how important others are. Without at least some selfish desires, some self-direction in your own person, there cannot exist statements like, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. If we lived in a truly selfless society where the individual did not matter, then we would have to say, treat others as they would like to be treated, no matter the cost to you. So when we say we have an addiction to ourselves, it doesn't sound like a terrible thing. It's a way to maintain ourselves in mind, body, and spirit in the world that we live in and the societies that we work in. It's an interesting argument to say the least. Where do we cut the line between individuality and altruism? I'd say that it comes down to the situation. As a rational being, we can determine the right course of action, and in so doing, we can afford not to make humanitarian mistakes like those the British made prior to the Opium Wars, and we can allow ourselves the civil liberty to care about us. And what could be so wrong about living for yourself? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Logs, a podcast dedicated to understanding. Please subscribe so you're notified of new episodes and find us anywhere you find podcasts. And please remember to laugh a little.